When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each, so if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Captain Leroy Torres. Torres served in the U.S. Army Reserve for 24 years and spent a year on duty in Balad, Iraq. When he returned home, he discovered he had sustained several physical injuries that were unrelated to combat. My name is uh, Leroy Torres. I was a captain in the Army Reserve. Uh, I served for, uh, for 23 years until uh, I was medically retired. Uh, I was a logistics officer. At first, uh, going going way back, or I was medically retired as a, as a captain on reserves, but I was uh, prior service. I mean, my, my uh, connection with, with the military goes back to my childhood. Uh, wanted to join the military when I was, uh, since uh, elementary, my dad served in the Korean War. My dad was drafted during the Korean War, and uh, I always uh, saw my dad as my hero. Uh, he inspired me uh, to be in the military, and that's one thing since I was a uh, you know, elementary, I wanted to, to join the Army and also to work uh, as a state trooper. I had already made up my mind as a child. That's what I wanted to do later on in life, in my careers. I joined uh, at 17. I was still in high school when I joined the military. I joined the Army National Guard. I remember I was uh, I had a, I was already talking to, to uh, recruiters <laughs> when I was 16 years old, and I wanted to join as, as early as I could. So... It was a, a trying season for, for my mom because uh, since I was, I'm the youngest, my mom had a difficult time, you know, uh, signing off for me since I was underage. But it was something that I, I wanted to do since, since a child. And I, I enlisted 
I remember December 9 of 1989, I enlisted in the Army National Guard and I completed my my junior year of uh, high school. And uh, within a week, I was already at Fort Benning, Georgia at basic training uh, following my junior year. And throughout that time, I, I you know, of course, finished my basic training. I came back to finish my senior year in high school and still attending my battle assemblies throughout throughout the year. And then as soon as I graduated from uh, from high school, within a week again, I was back at Fort Benning for my uh, advanced individual training for infantry school there at Fort Benning, Georgia again. Even serving uh, part-time <clears throat> as in the National Guard, there was still, I didn't feel complete. Like I, I wanted to, to go active duty. So I had a, a four-year scholarship to the University of Texas in Austin. And uh, I finished one year and I was in ROTC. And actually, uh, to a quick story, uh, my one of my, my professors said, MS professor said, hey, uh, I want you to promise me one thing. I want you to finish college once you finish your active duty. But, uh, you know, I kept bothering them. I want to go active duty. And they were trying to say, well, just wait till you finish your four years. But, you know, I was so uh, determined to serve active duty. And uh, March of 1992, I went active duty uh, through December of 1996. I almost went back active duty because I didn't get selected to the, the, uh, with the State Police Academy. Uh, actually, I applied three times to the academy, and that that first time I applied, I was still on active duty. Well, I come back home, and uh, I didn't get accepted. So what I did, I I joined the reserves uh, two months after. So February of 1997, I'm already in the reserves because I almost went back active duty because I missed it so much. In April of 97, I was already on a humanitarian mission in uh, Central America, in Belize. I, I spent two weeks down there. Already, because I had my sergeant major knew, like, man, I know you have it. It's in your blood. You're ready to do some active duty time. So, so he sent me on that humanitarian mission. But throughout that time, through '97 uh, and not until 1998, when I was finally accepted, and at the same time, I kept the promise to my my uh, military professor. I went back to school, back to college. I I started uh, attending classes while I was uh, uh, working at a, at a correctional facility. And then in 1998, I was accepted to the State Trooper Academy. So throughout my uh, my time as a State Trooper, they allowed me to uh, to still attend my battle assembly uh, during the, those uh, 26 strenuous weeks of training. And fortunately, I was I was uh, ended up stationed back in Corpus Christi, uh, Texas. So this is back to 1999. So throughout these years, I'm, I'm serving in the in the, the reserves. Well. In 2001, uh, 9-11, uh, I remember I was in uh, El Paso, Texas, and I was actually, I was visiting my uncle who was, uh, he was terminally ill. And I remember seeing the uh, the news that morning. And I'll tell you what, just my heart rate, just, uh, I just couldn't wait to get back. And, and I was already serving as a state trooper. And minutes after the attacks, I remember I received a phone call from my agency that I had to come back to Corpus Christi because since we we have a uh, the port of Corpus Christi, we were on on alert. Uh, our tactical team was was placed on alert with the state police. So uh, I tell you what, it was something that just really uh, motivated me. Even like me at that time, like man, I'm ready to go and serve. Uh, if if you know duty calls and, you know, to be activated, I was ready to go. But it was really a, a moment that uh, I've, I felt that I needed to be with my my brothers and sisters who, who were about to answer the call, but it was uh, definitely a, 
uh, a moving time in my life when whenever I, I received the news about the 9-11 attacks. I was born in Corpus, so I grew up in Corpus Christi. Uh, I was born in Corpus, and actually, I um, I graduated from, from the uh, DPS Academy in 1999, and that was my first duty station. That was my only duty station. So for 14 years, I, I served to DPS. I was stationed in Corpus Christi, Texas. I was enlisted at the time, and uh, our commanding general came down. This is back in maybe in 2001. He um, he came down to to our unit, and actually, my sergeant major approached me and said, "Hey, uh, I want you to to take uh, the CG. I want you to be his driver and take him down to to the valley, which is to the border or border units, which is about two hours south from where uh, from Corpus." And one of the first things that the the general asked me, he said, uh, I was a staff sergeant. He goes, staff sergeant, is there any reason you're not an officer? <laughs> and it said, uh, my, my, my BC is there, battalion commander. And he goes, uh, well, sir, honestly, I, I just haven't gone back to school. And he says, well, I think you'd be a damn good officer. But he told me, you'd be a damn good officer. And I, I, I recommend you go back and, and, uh, and do that. And tell you what, that next semester, I, I was, that, that's what I me back to, to start enroll back in college. And uh, once I, I earned my degree. Uh, the 95th Division was actually offering direct commissions at the time. Since I already had my degree, I just went before a board in uh, Oklahoma City, Texas. The board, I, I passed it with flying colors, and uh, lo and behold, uh, December of 2000, I was uh, granted my, my commission as a second lieutenant, which is pretty awesome. So, but actually, I, I ended up at a unit in San Antonio, Texas with 95th Division. Uh, I was, I worked in the brigade. Uh, I was, uh, that my, my branch was, uh, I was, uh, I was, uh, AG at, at the general branch. And uh, I was actually working in the, they put me in the brigade S1, which was, uh, to me was, was an experience working for a, a Fulbright colonel. It was pretty awesome as my first, uh, assignment as a first lieutenant, but thankfully my prior service, it was a very, uh, uh my experience as, as enlisted was a huge, huge help. You know, and, and serving and uh, the way I just uh, approached soldiers and the way we worked together, it was just amazing. As uh, that was my first uh, duty assignment as a commission officer. I was uh, deployed to Balad, Iraq in 2007. And uh, I was at that time, I was already a first lieutenant. And initially, I, I was supposed to go to Afghanistan. I uh, received uh, the phone call. I'll never forget. I was at a coffee shop with, with my dad. and. Uh, I had just taken him to, to the, VA, the VA clinic and we're sitting at the coffee shop and uh, he goes, man, son, it's great that you haven't been uh, activated. Not even five minutes, my phone rings. And uh, <laughs> it's my wife. See, I said, uh, hey, your, your number's been called. So you've been activated. You're, you're going to Afghanistan. So I walk in back on the coffee shop and told my dad, you don't believe what just happened. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm headed. I'm headed east. But uh my dad says, you know what, it was just a matter of time. So that this was uh, in uh, 2007, uh, November of 2007, a, a week before Thanksgiving, I arrived in Balad, Iraq. And I remember stepping off that shuttle. And one of the first questions, and, and me working in law enforcement, I mean, I ask a lot of questions. I'm very observant. One of the first things, man, what is that smell? So what is that stench in the air? Like, oh, that's just, that's the burn pits where they, they burn all, all the waste. I'm like, man, that's like a landfill. I mean, you know, we, 
Normally, people say it's a burn pit. You, you picture a, you know, a, not a significant hole or just in the ground where they, they burn the waste. But when I went and I saw this uh, from, of course, from a distance because it, it was it was all fenced and, and it was secured. I said, man, this thing is massive. And I remember I began to ask questions as to about the burn pit. Hey, is this uh, is this legal? I mean, are they following EPA guidelines? And of course, there was they well. It's not like, in other words, we stay in our lane. That's that's handled by the contractor, so we don't worry. You don't worry about that. So pretty much, we just we, uh, you know, stayed in our lane. That's that's what we were told to do. But a burn pit is uh, just uh, imagine a, a landfill size. Uh, Balad, Iraq, had the largest burn pit in in Iraq. It was approximately ten acres in diameter. Uh, so this was this this large, this huge pit landfill. Oil, where they would burn all, just imagine everything that's thrown into the trash, plus uh, medical waste, amputated body parts from the Balad Hospital, was just set ablaze with jet fuel and burned uh, from plastic bottles to styrofoam, equipment. So you name it, everything that was thrown in the trash was uh, was thrown in that pit, doused with JP fuel and lit on fire. And it burned 24-7. So at times you would see the, the plume of smoke. I mean, sometimes it'd be, it'd be darker times depending on what they were burning. I was within a mile from this burn pit, and even our the uh, at, at that time I'm, I was uh, assigned to a logistics unit. Our work area was even closer to the burn pit, and every time you could even taste that the smoke, just this nasty scent in your mouth, and, and it's the stench. Even at times, I, if I smell something, the boy man, it smells like. It reminds me, it takes me back to that stench. But thinking of a burn pit, I mean, this, this thing was massive. And uh, I've talked to other folks like, man, when you mentioned burn pits, we thought it was just like a, you know, maybe like an eight foot diameter hole in the ground where they burn waste. No, this, just imagine, you know, 10 acres of just waste being burned constantly. And it's just 24 seven. This burn pit was how it was maintained. But, but you name it, everything that was disposed and and to know that, no, no telling what all was thrown in there that included the, the medical waste from the hospital. I mean, just to think that we were inhaling and ingesting, you know, these toxic fumes, no wonder that it's taking a toll on our bodies. But a month after I was there, December 30th, I still remember because I kept my sick hall slip. And I remember going to the, uh, to the troop medical clinic to, to the, for urgent care. I was uh, having, uh, these coughing spells, like dry cough, but like sinus issues. Well, when uh, I saw the uh, the physician, he goes, "Yeah, you're 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 dealing with the Iraqi crud." He goes, "Your your body is adjusting to the environment." I'm like, "Okay," I said, uh, "You know, okay, I'll, I'll give it that." So they, they quarantined me for 72 hours. Um, I had a stomach bug and uh, upper respiratory infection. Put me on CPAC, and I got over it. it. Took me about maybe about two weeks. Wanted to get over that, but I noticed that throughout my deployment, I, I, I continued to have issues, especially after I was uh, come back from physical training, we would go run with, with our section and uh, the stadium they had there in Balat. And I would come back and I would just have this drainage from, from my sinuses, from my, my nose and I'd be taking a shower and it just, this set would just be coming out of my, my, my sinuses. And uh, I said, hey, I don't know, it's like, this environment, I, said, I think it's just uh, taking a toll on us. And so 
when I told my wife, I said, yeah, I, I she, cause she even, uh, as I, I was talking to her, she said, Hey, uh, you sound like you're raspy or like you're coming down with a cold. I said, no, it's just, uh, you know, this is bumping it there. They rid of all the waste. They burn all this waste. And so I think that's, that's having an effect on us, but that, that's just how, how my, my journey started. Uh, then I started having these, uh, waking up with headaches. This is already going back maybe halfway through my deployment. I started having these, uh, waking up with headaches. And I noticed that, uh, they were getting worse. And then the respiratory infection started. I started having the, the issues again with my, uh, like these flare ups. So I ended up going back to the TMC again, put me on CPAC. The same thing while you're dealing with a upper respiratory infection. I said, well, this has already been here for months. And I said, is this still the Iraqi crowd? I said, well, it's just, you know, everybody's different. Your body's just dealing with, with, with some changes. But here's some ZPAC medication. Uh, it was like the same thing over and over. I remember at the end of my deployment, towards the end, I uh, I started having like these tremors. Uh, my hands were shaking. And the thing is, I didn't go with my, my unit. I was an individual augmentee, so I didn't know anybody in this unit. So during that time, uh, as we connected with my unit, I, I would ask questions and say, hey, are you are you feeling any issues with me? Oh, yeah, the, the hacking cough and issues that they have been dealing with as well. But I noticed that I started having these tremors. When I, it, it took me about uh, a few months to finally, but this just went away, these tremors when I came back. But I remember coming back and three weeks later, I was in the emergency room. And I had a horrific uh, upper respiratory infection. And one of the first things the doctor asked me, hey, have you been around any chemicals? You've been exposed to anything? I said, well, I was in Iraq. I only, I've been back for about three weeks. I was around these burn pits where they burn waste. And, so, and then he goes, okay, I'll be right back. The doctor comes back with, he put a, he comes back with a mask. And that's when I started kind of the flags raising up. But like, you know what, there's something, I believe that, that uh, affected me you know, from the exposure to these burn pits. And I, I remember uh, they sent me home and I told my wife, you know what, I, I think uh, uh, I'm going to have some some issues here in the future. And I'm going to back up a little bit. I remember before I left a lot of Iraq, uh, I was handed a memo from uh, Curtis Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. And it talked about the hazards of burn pits in a lot of Iraq. And when I received that memo, that's when I knew, like, okay, I know where this is going. <laughs> I said, this is for your medical record. And I knew, I said, you know what, this is going to be, it's going to be some issues we're going to deal with. And sure enough, that sixth sense that I always had throughout my deployment, uh, I remember I even telling my wife, oh, one thing my wife noticed when I came back home, she says, I noticed that you sleep with the sheets over your head. I said, well, I, I, I use that as a, kind of as a filter, you know, because I noticed when I would wake up uh, in the mornings and I'd go outside my, my uh, housing unit, there was this set on the on the AC unit and I would just wipe it. And it was just like this chalky residue from, from the, and I said, this is, this is from the purpose. This is crazy. And, and everybody, I would, I would ask questions there in my unit or people that, that I came in contact with. They said, oh yeah, it's just from the purpose, you know, that they're, they burn a lot more uh, of the, the waste at night. So, we were, this, we're inhaling, we're taking this stuff in. Once I received that letter and I came back home and then I ended up in the emergency room, I just told my wife, you know what, this is not going to be good here in the future. Uh, things that I'm going to have to be dealing with. And, and sure enough, 
I went back to work. Finally, my uh, my dad was terminally ill when I came back from Iraq. So he was in hospice for four months. So I, I spent a lot of time with my dad before he passed. So I didn't go back to work till this is back till uh, March of 2009. Because I came back in November of 2008. March of 2009, I'm back at work. And I remember waking up with the headaches, having the the raspy voice. And that's one thing that I, to this day, I deal with. And my wife's like, it sounds like you have something in your throat, like you always have, uh, like you're congested. I said, well, I'm having sinus issues. But I would always play it off because my fear was I did not want to lose my my job as a, you know, as a state trooper. Because this, this was my, it was my childhood dream. And I didn't want to lose my job. And that was, that was the fear that I always had. And uh, so in our generation, our in the army was the model A second of drive on. And that's what I did. That's what I did. I would wake up with these excruciating headaches. Oh, my God, I was pounding so much Tylenol uh, just to, before I go to work, just trying to, to uh, suppress the pain. And then there again, I ended up going to the urgent care with the, uh, the, the flare-ups. And again, oh, yeah, you're, you're dealing with upper respiratory infection. Here's another Z-pack. And it's like every couple of weeks, I ended up going to urgent care for, for, for treatment. In 2010, August of 2010, I remember I was transferred to the driver's license uh, office. It was in a promotion. It was uh, just a take a break from the highway. They, uh, they put me on, on Monday through Friday schedule, which was it was it was good. So I could spend more, more family, you know, time with family. So it, it was a good move you know, uh, for me and my family. So I, I was working Monday to Friday, but I was working in, a, in an office environment while I started having these flare-ups a lot more. Of course, uh, later I found out that that building had mold. <laughs> Fears later I found out. I told my wife, man, it's like I'm always sick when, I, when I'm at work. I, I feel worse and the headaches are worse. Well, August of 2010, my, my sergeant, he came in the office. He goes, hey, uh, this man, you, you, you've been you've been coming in with this horrific cough and you have to work with the public here. People are starting to ask questions and I said, maybe you're contagious and we know you were in Iraq. So you need to address the issue because at that time I had already started, uh, I was missing work. And, uh, because of, of, of these issues, I was out sick, like with a cold. It's like, you, you, you seem to always be getting these, these, these recurring colds. You need to get checked out. And sure enough, they sent me home. They actually, they told me to leave. I said, you, you need to go home and you cannot return to work until you have answers. Well, August of 2010 is when our journey began, uh, seeking for answers as to what was going on with me. The, I began to have shortness of breath. And uh, I'm going to back up a little bit. And uh, the summer of 2009, it was the summer of 2009, I was in a foot pursuit. And I remember... Once I apprehended the suspect, I, I started having a lot of chest pressure. And I remember I, I had to take a knee. And I mean, we were one-man units, so backup usually took 15 minutes, you know. So by the time backup arrived, uh, I, I had the guy in custody. And and I remember the uh, officers that, that, that backed me up. because man, are you okay? I said, man, I, I don't know. I just I felt lightheaded. Uh, I, I thought I was having a stroke. I just felt a lot of pressure in my chest. It took me, my goodness, probably maybe 15, 20 minutes. I just had to sit it out for a little while. And that's when I noticed, like, there's something wrong. That, that uh, since something's going on in my, with my lungs, 
I just couldn't put my finger on it. I mean, we, we went to Brook Harbor Medical Center, went to Wilford Hall Medical Center in San Antonio, went to Audie Murphy VA Hospital. And they looked at me like, man, it's, maybe it's in my head. And I remember going to, uh, to Baylor University Hospital in Houston, and this, the, well, the doctor gave me psych meds. And he pats my back. He goes, this is going to help you relax. And that's when I, I just, I walked out of the office. And, and at this time, I'm already frustrated because we couldn't find answers. And I, I took that piece of paper and I just, I balled it up. And I, I told my wife, you know what, let's go. You know, we're not getting nowhere with, with uh, finding answers to what's wrong with me because it couldn't pinpoint my, uh, my pulmonary function tests were normal. And at that time, my wife started connecting with families uh, on uh, social media and met with these uh, families that were also, I say, about, she started researching about burn pits. And sure enough, we, she connected with families. We connected with Dr. Robert Miller out of uh, Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee, at Vanderbilt University Hospital. Well, Dr. Miller was already doing research for, for years. Uh, he was uh, seeing soldiers from the 101st Airborne Division that had been exposed to the sulfur fires in Iraq and also to burn pits. And he had already done like so many, uh, maybe like 49 lung biopsies at the time. And I think all of them, but two were all positive for constrictive bronchiolitis. And when my wife found Dr. Miller, I said, you know what, we're gonna go see Dr. Miller. And of course we go to the VA. Thankfully, uh, Dr. Uh, Figueroa at the time, he was in Iraq, so he knew what I was talking about. But as far as a lot of other physicians, like no, maybe it's anxiety, or maybe I was developing asthma. Just everything else, but nothing to do with, with burn pit exposure. Well, in, in the fall of 2010, this is around maybe September of 2010, uh, the VA, I finally get approved to go to the War-Related Illness and Injury Center in uh, Washington, D.C. So they admit me to the hospital. I'm in there for four days. And on my discharge, the, uh, the, the chief pulmonologist their findings were, you do have shortness of breath, but it's unknown ideology. So my wife at that time has already connected with families. She's aware that some, some uh, veterans have already passed away from unexplained, uh, either from different types of cancers, leukemia, and which the family is, and this has to be connected to birth exposure. Well, at that time she asked the doctor, well, why, well, I want a lung biopsy. I want you for, for y'all to do a lung biopsy on my, on my husband because he needs answers. He can't go back to work until we have answers. And of course, the, their response, well, we're not equipped to do biopsies. It's one thing that we cannot, uh, we don't have the resources to do that here at this facility. I said, but you're the, this is, you're the more illness injury study center. You're supposed to be capable of doing that. Of course, so so that was another door closed for us. Um, and at that time, my wife had, has, had already been talking to Dr. Robert Miller in, uh, at Vanderbilt University Hospital. In November 16 of 2010, I was already, uh, that's when I had my lung biopsy there at, at the Vanderbilt Hospital. And I'm gonna back up a little bit. Before, on our initial visit, he goes, I'm not gonna recommend the biopsy because just from your symptoms and the CT scan did show air trapping on your lower lobes of your lungs, I could pretty much guarantee that you have constrictive bronchitis. But because you're telling me that your job needs answers and we'll have to move because it's, it's an invasive procedure, it's painful. And I'll tell you what, that was, 
it took a year for me to recover from that lung biopsy. But I couldn't lay on my right side for a year because of the, they took um, in three areas. Of course, one was for the chest tube, but they cut me in two other areas and they, they took a small wedge in my lower lobe and uh, my lower lobe of my lung. And that's when they discovered that uh, when the, the surgeon walked in the next, the next day and I came to and he showed me the, the picture of my lungs and he asked me, and I said, are you a, have you, are you a smoker, son? I said, no, sir. I never smoked in my life. And he showed me the lungs. It's like I could see like inflammation. And, and the way he was explaining to me, he goes, you have uh, peribronchial fibrosis. You have constricted bronchiolitis. But uh, yeah, you have a lung injury. And this is from exposure, toxic exposure. And I remember before I was full into operating room, my, my wife was, her words to me is, you know what? Uh, I'm going to make your promise. It says, I'm going to fight for you. She says, no matter what the outcome is, and uh, she said, and she was crying. She said, no matter what the outcome is, I'm going to fight for you because you're not going to be the last one that's going to go through this. It's going to be many more. And, uh, you know, going back over a decade, uh, she kept her promise. But that was uh, difficult for me to, to accept because I already knew the first thing I thought about, I'm going to lose my job. You know, I was one of the first things that I thought in. I said, this is my childhood dream. So I, I started, you know, having a lot of uh, um, very uh, difficult season in my life. Once knowing that it was a, when the, the, the doctors explained to me, this is a permanent condition, it's irreversible, and that even it may progress later in life. So, um, of course, we come back home. Actually, we met a family in, uh, in Nashville, uh, Steph's aunt, uh, Ox, Steve Oxy. Actually, he was with the 101st, and he, he passed away around 2008. But she, uh, uh, Stacey Pennington, had already been advocating for her brother regarding burn pit exposure, toxic exposure. Well, we connected with that family. Well, they took us in for for the two weeks that I was there because I couldn't fly back because the doctors were afraid that my lung may collapse. So I had to have family. They traveled to, to Tennessee and picked me up and then drove me back. But, but we, we were there for two weeks. So I didn't get back home till actually we spent Thanksgiving on the road on uh, th- uh, 2010, Thanksgiving 2010, which was difficult because we couldn't see our kids. Finally made it back home. And uh, this was a, a time that I was afraid to, um, to talk to my, my agency because I, I, I knew that I, they were going to just kind of, they were going to secure my job at that time. And sure enough, I come back home, you know, I, I talk to my supervisors, say, I have a permanent condition, I have a lung injury associated because of burnt exposure, toxic exposure. So I need a job accommodation. I, I said, I can't come back to work. I can't fulfill my duties. Well, then my my service captain comes back and says, well, this is, let's see what we can do for you. But this is like in 20, end of 2010, I go back to work 2011. Um, I'm put on light duty. Well, it was just temporary. Uh, I go through 2011. I, I start, of course, start missing work again. The headaches get worse. Uh, I remember one time I was on, uh, I was there at the office and uh, I was in so much pain that I had to go and check myself in at the VA clinic. And uh, they actually, uh, as soon as I get there, they put me on oxygen 
And they didn't know what to say, I'm sorry, but we don't know, we don't know what to, what to do for you. We, we, so that, that's when the, our journey started also with, with the, the headaches. As of now, I have over 400 medical visits uh, since I've been back. And, and the routine, for me, the routine uh, that for me to deal with my headaches, I was put on uh, uh, IV meds and oxygen. And I would, they would keep me for a few hours. The, once uh, the, the headaches would diminish, I would be discharged and here's some pain medication. And that was, that was my life with the headaches for 10 years, 13 years. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. I remember uh, in 2018, I was diagnosed with toxic uh, encephalopathy, which is a toxic brain injury. And uh, throughout this time, I just, I told my wife, and I, I don't know what else to do anymore because we can't get answers, but we traveled to Colorado to have a Q-spec scan. And that's where they discovered uh, this, this brain injury. And throughout this time, I, I noticed that I started having trouble with my, my short-term memory, my cognitive abilities. Uh, I began to have issues. Uh, I, I can, I mean, I will be talking to somebody and I will lose my train of thought. And it was very frustrating uh, because even, uh, I mean, and throughout this day, I struggle with it, but I've learned to cope. And that's why I, I, I wore this oxygen because uh, it's my rescue med for the headaches. This is what alleviates the headaches. And who would have thought that all I needed was some oxygen to alleviate the headaches. So this is what, if I use it like I'm supposed to, it keeps me out of the you know, having to go to the emergency rooms on those visits. But, um, you know, that was a long 10 years of waiting for answers because the whole time I was given medication for migraine headache, for migraine headaches. And all this time I had a toxic brain injury. So this was something that, that I dealt with for a long time. You know, here recently, lately, I've been having a lot of GI issues. I've been having GI bleeds. Uh, I was in the hospital in January, this past January for, uh, pancreatitis well they say my pancreatitis was was not functioning four days later it's back to normal so the doctor's like man this is a mystery i've been having h pylori infections for the last two years they i've been on so much treatment i've been on so many antibiotics that it doesn't treat it so um, i'm just waiting to go um to go to mayo clinic uh to see if they can they can help but that's uh, i've been dealing with these issues for 10 years these mysterious GI bleeds. 
Burkus 360 inception came about after our personal experience with the delay and denial issue, not only from not not receiving the the specialized healthcare or even uh, yeah, especially healthcare, but also the the challenge with my with my job loss. And for my wife, when she told me that as the equipment to operate room made me that promise, she began connecting with families. She created a website. I mean, this is from our, you know, our kitchen at our home. She created a website, went to the Mr. Print, created a website, just printed some brochures. I mean, this goes back uh, in 2010. I remember being discharged from that war-related illness and injury study center. And we were wheeling our luggage down the hallways of Congress following our, our my discharge. And she was handing out brochures that she had printed about talking about burn pits, what a burn pit is. So this goes back to, to, uh, to 2010. And I say it's, it's passion driven that we made it this far, but when you get a, a group of committed families and brothers and sisters that you served along with, and that I've lost some great brothers and sisters uh, because of, of the illnesses that they're, that they were no longer here. And that, that was one of the, as I explained to some reporters that they have the passing of the pact act that it was bittersweet because those that walked the hallways of Congress with us were no longer here. That they passed away because of these illnesses. But knowing that that uh, Burkus through sixty and throughout the years how this started just just from from our, our home kitchen how it became an advocacy group. And I remember in twenty eleven there was a uh, there was a Virginia Quarterly Review. Malcolm Garcia came and he did a story on us and, and our journey. I mean, this is like, he goes, man, this is, it's this grassroots. This is how it just looking back how, how this started and how far that we have come. But knowing that because of the delay denial, we got a group of families that came together and we began to advocate and we began to ask, ask to networking with, with researchers, with Dr. Miller, began to work with him, with Dr. Anthony Zema, who had already been doing research. But it was connecting families with those physicians. My mission was I didn't want these fellow veterans to go through what I went through, through not having answers, through having doors shut in their face or being told, hey, go, go and build momentum, then come back. But there were so many doors that were closed throughout the years. Uh, I remember in 2017, we were at the, uh, in D.C. We had our first congressional briefing. We were briefing uh, staffers what burn pits are on awareness and, and still like, well, we would put the, the content was put out there, but it's like no sound bites. Everything was shut down. Nobody was listening. Well, in looking back that, that, uh, persistence and when you're passionate about something and, and you drive the, uh, the key element to stick, you know, to your promise. And, and there's promises that I made. I made a promise to my star major who passed away in 2014. Sorry, Major Bella. And I remember and these promises like that, whenever I struggled with my health, that I said, you know what? I remembered his voice. Says, sir, he, his words to me says, sir, you're, you're, you're going to be our voice when we're no longer here. Just don't give up in this fight because it's going to be a tough fight, but, but don't, don't give up because you're, you're going to be our voice when we are no longer here. So it was those, those moments that inspired me to continue my fight, to continue the advocacy throughout the years. But in seeing the, how this came about here to the, the passing of, of, of the pack time, how much work and effort, but that democracy works, it, it works. And 
when you get a group of veterans, I mean, those, I believe those, those values that you were taught in the military, like the army, the soldier street, there's two lines that always stick to me. Says, I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. And those, those two lines, I told my wife, you know what, till the good Lord calls me or, you know, as long as I wake up with a breath and there's times that I, you know, like yesterday, I was having a tough day yesterday with the headaches. I was having a, a difficult day, but I told my wife, and I wake up every day, I regroup and drive on, continue to, to press on this issue and bring the continued awareness for those that, that need the help. But here a few days ago, there was a veteran that shared a, a testimonial where he was, uh, he was so grateful. He goes, I'm so glad to see this pack. He said, I was finally granted my, my VA compensation. So uh, just for, for his privacy, you know, the, the group, the advocacy group, they sent us a video, but it was awesome to hear from this one veteran. And, and one thing he said, he goes, well, now my, I don't have to worry if, if I pass that my children will be taken care of. So that, that brought a lot of peace to me that so many are, will be helped now that have been struggling. Like I struggled for over, over these 10 years. Thankfully, my vehicles was finally approved after a couple of years, but because the army did their own investigation. The army did a line of duty investigation and it was revealed that due to an instrumentality of war that they discovered that my lung injury was due to burn pit exposure. And now if it had not been for that, you know, who knows how long it would have taken for me to get that approval. But, but that's, it's just been so, brings so much peace and um, this joy that now these veterans are not left out there in the cold that now they, they can submit their claims and get the help that they need. Staff Sergeant Will Thompson, double lung transplant survivor. We worked together and uh, he was part of the panel of that congressional briefing in 2017. Him and his family walked the hallways of Congress in 2017. In 2018, uh, he was a great brother. And he, no matter in, in what condition he was in, he said, hey, brother, see, if I can speak, I'm going to. I'm going to represent, I'm going to represent Burn Pits 360 and, you know, our fellow brothers and sisters. And it's just this, man, it's, he just had this heart of gold. But Staff Sergeant Will Thompson, rest in peace. Uh, you know, unfortunately, he, he passed away here December of last year. But just knowing, uh, actually, uh, at the, at the PACT Act, um, once the, the first vote, when the Senate, uh, it passed the Senate the first time. I remember going to that press conference and, and I had his, uh, his, his wife, Susanna, sent me a real nice card, a thank you card and had his picture and actually had that on my, on my binder and, that, and that, uh, on my smart book that I carry with me. And I was sharing with people and I said, man, this is why we're here today for people like my brother, Stash on Will Thompson, who's no longer here. But you know what? His legacy lives on because he fought so hard for us. Uh, his last testimony that he gave to the uh, the veterans committee there in Congress, he he had to zoom because he was already he was not doing well, but uh, he still said, you know what, I'll still testify, and he gave a statement. So it's people like Steph Sergeant Thompson, and uh, I, I didn't get to meet Sergeant First Class Keith Robinson, but I met his wife, you know, and his daughter, and, and uh, oh my God, it is is uh, his, uh, his mother in law. Susan, just amazing advocate. Actually, I met her in uh, 2017 also at the congressional briefing. That's when we first met. 
uh, Susan, it was just amazing to, to connect, but working all these years, these past, you know, five years with those advocates have just made a tremendous impact in our lives, knowing that when you put your, uh, your thoughts together and when you come together with this passion, that no matter how many doors close on you, you know, like on the second vote, when it didn't pass, that it wasn't a moment that we were going to quit. We had veterans out there. Actually, my wife stood out there at the Capitol steps for five days. She was out there with, with you know, during that fire watch. Veterans that came together. You know, we have uh, Tim Jensen from Grunstyle who was out there and said, "Man, we're gonna we're gonna stand with you. We're gonna stand united and peacefully." They advocated out there and and protesting and just showing the support. Actually, all, all the signs that they had out there, they gave them to my wife so we can. Uh, bring back it as and, and to have them as memorabilia from, from that path back from the passing and all those days that they spent out there in the capital but just seeing that that the, the the potential that that was there that we were victorious and we, we didn't give up on that fight that was captain leroy torres to learn more about him and burn pits 360 visit burnpits360.org thanks for listening to warriors in their own words if you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.